A retired Wisconsin judge was shot and killed June 4th at his home in Boston, about 75 miles northwest of Madison. And a man with a gun and a knife was arrested June 8th outside a U.S. Supreme Court justice's home in suburban Washington after threatening to kill Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Besides violent attacks on our judicial system, our courts have increasingly become a partisan punching bag for politicians, which hurts public trust and erodes judicial independence. It feels like it's worse than it's ever been when it comes to lack of respect for the judiciary. And we're going to talk about the state of our courts on today's Center Stage with Milford and Hands, the Wisconsin State Journal's political podcast from the Sensible Center of Wisconsin Politics. With a very special guest. Yes, Janine Geske, a former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice and Milwaukee County Judge. And more importantly, she happens to be a citizen editorial board member of the Wisconsin State Journal. I'm Scott Milford. I'm the editorial page editor for the Wisconsin State Journal. I'm Phil Hands. I'm the editorial cartoonist for the Wisconsin State Journal. And with Janine here, we are half of the Wisconsin State Journal editorial board. The more judicious half. You know, I almost thought about going to law school once, Scott. <laughs> really? That you made the right decision, I made Phil. the right decision. <laughs> Janine Geske has graciously served on our Wisconsin State Journal editorial board for nearly a year now. She was a member of the Wisconsin Supreme Court from 1993 to 1998, Milwaukee County Circuit Court from 81 to 93. She's a law professor at Marquette University and is director of the law school's Restorative Justice Initiative, Janine served as interim Milwaukee County Executive in 2002 and started her career as a teacher. Janine Geske, welcome to Center Stage with Milford and Hands. We wanted to get your insights today on the scary attacks of late on the judiciary. Specifically, retired Juneau County Judge John Romer was killed by someone he had sentenced to prison. We also had a man arrested outside the private home of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. He's accused of seeking to kill Kavanaugh following the leak of a draft opinion about the high court's potential decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Judges have always been a potential target, but is this getting to a different level? What do you make of this, Janine? It is hard to tell if it's a different level. And the reason I say that is that it is rarely made public when judges are threatened. Something happens, the judge receives a threatening letter, somebody's appearing in the courtroom. Generally, both law enforcement and the judge have an interest in not making it public so it doesn't generate other kinds of threats. And so in some ways, it's hard to tell. I know that there has been documentation, particularly of federal judges and the amount of threats they have, and it's pretty large. It would not surprise me just because there's more gun violence and anger and rage in the country generally that judges are getting more threats, but they've been around as long as I've been a judge. And it's always something that crosses your mind and then you push it out and you do your job. So I can't really say whether they're more or not. Do circuit court judges face higher dangers than say appeals court judges and, and, and Supreme Court judges who are dealing with more matters of law versus actually putting people in prison? They do, I think. And, and one of the principal reasons is the defendants are in front of the judge. They see the judge. They hear the judge. Whereas the appellate courts are looking at the records and the defendant or people who are upset with the judge rarely see the judge. And so they're more out of sight. It's that rage in the courtroom, that anger about a sentence, that anger about something that is said that can spark something. And I think some of the threats are really by people who are mentally ill. And again, they've had that interaction with the judge 
And I think it then focuses them more on that individual. It's also obstruction of justice in a way, isn't it? It's not just a threat to an individual. It's an attempt to undermine our whole judicial system and its authority and ability to function. Well, it is. The courts have to be respected by people and the courts need to be free of that bias and and be impartial. I think about that for jurors, too, that if jurors feel threatened, are they going to be as fair and impartial as we want them to be? And it is an interference. And it also discourages certain people from even applying or running to be a judge for fear that their family is going to be at risk or that they're going to be at risk. And the more threats there are, the more risk that we have that that happens. Did you experience any fear or threats when you were a judge, be it at the county level or even at the Supreme Court level? I had a a number of occasions where there are threats I really worried about. There are threats you don't. When somebody sort of yells out in the courtroom and threatens you, I I didn't particularly worry about that. So it was sort of the anger in the moment. But when you found out that somebody was plotting to do something or writes you a letter a year or two after they've been in the courtroom, it was frightening. And I, a couple of times I had law enforcement give us protection. When I was first married, I actually had police officers sleeping in our living room for a couple of nights. That's a fun honeymoon. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, the funny thing about that story is that it was a really big case and I'd been working on it. It involved the police. And after I announced that decision, there were death threats and the police, they won. So the police were very accommodating to me. And they got, came to our house and we had just moved into this tiny little house and it was a mess because I've been working on the opinion. So I told Mike to tell the police that it was just ransacked. <laughs> <laughs> I worried more about people that I knew were mentally ill. I had one guy for about a year that would sit in the back of my courtroom every day. And mm. then he would write me letters with sign different names. Those are the people you don't quite know what's going on. And actually, that particular man, I eventually figured out who he was and checked his record. And he'd gone to prison for threatening President Reagan. So that made me even more nervous. Wow. But fortunately, I've never had a real confrontation with anyone. There's been a lot of stories about whether or not, both at the federal level and at state levels, judges should have more security. What do you think about that? The answer is yes, but it's a balancing of costs for taxpayers. I think what ought to be available is law enforcement dedicated and if somebody gets a threat or something that they're there right away and that there's somebody who's experienced in dealing with threats and mental health. Um, I think the federal judges have more protection than the circuit court judges and the, the, the state judges. I don't know that we want protection 24-7 at home. But on the other hand, when you're walking out of the courtroom at six o'clock at night and there's nobody there in the hallway and, you know, it's an open hallway and you're walking into your parking lot by yourself, there probably should be more protection for people. Uh, and as I said, it's for prosecutors, it's for witnesses, it's for jurors and for the judges to make sure that no harm comes to anybody. Well, that's a good point and kind of a sad uh, indictment on our society that you probably probably need a special police force out there that just deals with threats to public officials and people that are disturbed and riled up about either a court case or we see it with politics. School boards. School board meetings, a dedicated police force, 
maybe at the state level, because I'm sure not every county can afford to have a you know sheriff's deputy or something like that doing it, that, that can come in there and, and take care of a, a dangerous situation for elected officials or public officials that are just doing their job. It would be important to have, and maybe it is a statewide team out of the attorney general's office or someone who could come who are used to dealing with people with mental health issues. Now, it, you know, it'll be interesting to see when we look at Judge Runner and whether there were any threats to him between the time he sentenced this guy and the time he ultimately was murdered. Did the guy just pop back up into the judge's life or was, were there some series of uh, signs that maybe he was threatening? And I don't think we know that now. I'm sure law enforcement does. But, you know, it's not infrequent that there's sort of a, a buildup to it. And, um, you know, you need specialized law enforcement to handle that, just like with school shootings. I mean, you don't just treat that like you're stopping a guy on the street. I do think that ought to be available for people when we have a problem, because we have enough problems in, in the state to, to warrant that. Did you know Judge Romer? No. How much does partisanship leaking into the judicial system play a role in people being more upset with judges? Well, I think it's huge now. And that was not an issue before. Just because this country is so divided along political lines and people are angry and that twisted in that is the gun issue and court issues involving masking and all those issues. And there's this partisan lines. And then there is an effort by people to put judges in these partisan boxes even though at least in Wisconsin and other states, many states, they're supposed to be impartial and not a member of a party. But we've gotten to a point, are they conservative? Are they liberal? And that translates not into judicial philosophy, but translate into politics. And with all the anger and rage. And if you look at this gunman's list on, on this murder mm-hmm. was interesting because, you know, here he had Governor Evers and he had uh, the governor from Michigan, and then um, Mitch McConnell. Yeah, all over the map. Well, I mean, I don't know. Trump and McConnell never got along. If you think that Mitch McConnell is the reason that Trump wasn't able to fight the the election fraud, you know, you know, I could see, I could see that being a political reasoning there. But yeah, it does seem odd to have him on your list of people you're out to get. And I don't know why Gretchen Whitmer's on the list. Apparently, everyone's out to get her. Nobody likes Gretchen Whitmer except for the people that lecture all the time. It's because of that militia in Michigan, I think, and she ordering them out of the Capitol and and that sort of started. But I think there's a really big militia group in Michigan. But I think there's a big one in Wisconsin as well. And that's the other thing will be interesting out of this homicide to see what connections this guy had with any other groups. I mean, you know, he may not have been part of one, but how much he listened to them and what actually happened in terms of making a list and writings and things. We haven't heard any of those things yet, but I suspect there's some of that. And, you know, people will argue there's mental health there and he needed mental health treatment. Well, it's, it's fixation on things, but, you know, frankly, a lot of people are fixated on hating people these days. So, it's pretty hard to do preventative work, and that's why we have to be on the alert for any signs that there may be a problem for someone's safety. Nowadays, too, we can go into somebody's social media history and dig in to see what they were, you know, what groups they were working with on Facebook or if they were active in some sort of, you know, right-wing militia group or left-wing, you know, radical group, um, and we sort of learn. But I, I worry sometimes we just sort of 
people do things on social media all the time. Does it, does it, does it translate into real life all the time? I don't know. And where do you draw the line? I mean, that's what the FBI will say, you know, how we can't chase everybody down who writes something. So how do we figure out which ones are the real ones, the real danger, and how would we figure out the other ones? And there's no easy answers. I mean, I think as time goes on, they're developing profiles or signs of somebody who's moving to that next level. I had a guy who was sitting in the back of my courtroom all that time. I approached a forensic psychologist and I said, should I be afraid? I mean, and actually the, the psychologist came and sat in my courtroom. I was doing civil matters. And a psychologist watched the guy that was watching me. And he said to me, there are different levels. First, there are people that just write you. And they are making that that personal connection. There are people that go in a space where you are in. That's another level. He said, if they approach you, and he never, this guy never did, if he approaches you in the hallway and engages, you know, he gave me instructions about being polite, but getting out of his presence and things. And so there are these steps of things they look for to say he's he's progressing to a more violent encounter. I think there's going to have to be more training of judges on that, too, because it's hard to tell who's going to be angry. I had one woman angry at me that I handled seven years earlier in a small case, and she apparently sat and stewed over it for seven years. So you just never know. How much of a problem is politicians targeting judges? I remember when Barack Obama once directly addressed the Supreme Court justices in front of him. It was a state of the union. People got offended by that. Then we go to Trump, who would single out local individual judges. In one case, he singled the guy out just because he was Mexican-American, which a lot of people thought was racist. But Trump seemed to have no qualms with singling out judges from the Oval Office for scorn. And then we also had Chuck Schumer, who after the draft opinion came out for Roe v. Wade said, I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. So how much of that is a problem? And isn't that kind of new? Well, it is somewhat new. There was a decision that our court reached on the powers of the state superintendent of schools. And two justices had been appointed by Tommy Thompson. I was one. And John Wilcox was the other. And the court was unanimous to say that there had been overreaching, trying to take away at that time Evers' authority. Well, I can tell you that that Tommy Thompson blasted um, John Wilcox and me for some time. He finally got over it, but it was a good year that he wouldn't talk to us at formal events and things. But I think there's more of that. I mean, there's this assumption that we got to have judges in our pockets. They got to be deciding for us. And if not, they're bad guys. I tell you, I was disappointed when Obama did it. Uh, I certainly didn't like it when Trump did it. And I think Schumer went way over the line Mm -hmm. because it just fuels these people who are so angry and that want to take out their anger and rage on a particular judge. And, um, you know, this thing with, with Justice Kavanaugh is just scary to have some guy walking around with zip ties and guns outside his house. At least he called the cops himself. That's a little bizarre, his whole, yeah, I'm going to be cooperative. You wonder if, because there was law enforcement out there, because they get protection, whether he would have called the cops if he hadn't seen them. Are there solutions? Would doing away with judicial elections help to soften 
some of the partisanship and the view by the public that these judges are either red or blue. They're either Republicans or Democrats. They're not independent judges, which is they're supposed to be. Is that part of a solution? And what other solutions do you see to where we're at these days? In theory, it should be. I was very much an advocate for elections because I thought it was important, and I believed it was important, for judges to be out meeting people, to traveling around the state for state court judges, explaining what the court did, them getting to know you. I think it made you a better judge. Once all that big money came in and these elections are really controlled, by corporate donations rather than sitting down with uh, League of Women Voters in Sheboygan or going up, up north and, and meeting with a Rotary Club, it started shifting. The appointment process, in theory, could be a good one. The problem is you look at what's happened to our state elections board. What entity is going to be responsible for appointing those judges? Our governors are pretty partisan. But those committees, you know, there's going to be a fight about who's on that committee and who's making recommendations. So if you had an impartial, neutral group that were really looking at the qualifications and not the partisan politics, you'd be doing a lot better. A number of states do that. A lot of the most of the original colonies, they're all appointed. They don't run. And a lot of states think we're nuts for elections. And I used to say they made sense. I'm not so sure anymore. It's really a combination of our court basically allowing a lie to exist in ads and to have all this money put into it. You know, I don't know how much the public is really learning about candidates through an election. Another possible change or improvement that some people have floated, and I believe even Scott Fitzgerald back in the day expressed some mild interest in it, was some kind of a term limit for state Supreme Court justices in Wisconsin, maybe a 15 or 16 year term. The idea being that once you're on the court, you're not going to have to raise a bunch of money again. You're not going to have to go out and play politics in a campaign again. You can just be a judge and do what you think is right. I think that that model has merit to look at it. In theory, Judges being on the court for a long time, you get more experienced, you're better at writing, you're more thoughtful in your opinions, but it will also bring different kinds of people into the judgeship, and that may be good or bad, people that are not going to vote the rest of their career. It used to be that it was primarily older judges or lawyers who ran for the court, and of course, I was an exception, as was others, and now it's, for the most part, it's people that are younger. Considering what's happened with elections... I don't think that that's such a bad remedy. Did somebody like uh, Justice Hagedorn, who, in my opinion, and I don't always agree with him one way or another, has had more courage than we've seen for a long time on mm-hmm. a court. And if he runs again, he's going to get hammered by his base. We know it. You can already hear mm-hmm. Justice Dan Kelly is attacking him because he's not always with the one side. And if you didn't have to face election at the end of the 15 years, you wouldn't worry about it as much as if you were going to run again. Hagedorn has been a really pleasant surprise. I mean, I've been shocked with his independence. He's the most independent judge from either the left or the right political spectrum I've seen in a long... I mean, I haven't seen uh, one of our liberal judges, I'm doing air quotes around them, buck their party. It's been forever. And the fact that there's this conservative that the left hated because of his stances on gay marriage, because of the schools he was involved with, you know, and, and he's turned out to be this person who seems to look at the law and isn't afraid to say, this is what the law says, and I don't care what the politics are. 
is really refreshing in Wisconsin politics. It's judicial courage, which is what you should have. I mean, I often would say to myself, if I lose an election over my ruling and I believe my ruling is right, then I lose my election. I mean, you can't have I, I feel that way about Congress as well. People should stand up for what they think is right. And if they lose their positions over it, they lose it. But there, there's something more important than winning re-election. I think Hagedor has been impressive, willing to take that on because he believes he's deciding the right way. So I wish we'd see more of that across the judiciary. The race that's going to draw an incredible amount of money, of course, is going to be next spring when Pat Rogensack is stepping down. One of the quote-unquote conservatives on the state Supreme Court, that means whichever candidate wins could move the court because it's 4-3 now. As you look ahead to that election, what do you expect, Janine? I find it hard to predict what's going to happen because I think it's sort of the issue of the moment. I mean, there are a number of people, a couple of former judges who are announcing or saying they're going to run. Justice Kelly has indicated he'll probably run. And the fact that he's taken on Justice Hagedorn publicly when he wouldn't be running against Hagedorn, and he bills himself as a true, true red conservative. Janet Prasasewicz, who's a judge in Milwaukee, I wouldn't put her in a political box. I know her quite well, but I, I really don't know anything about her personal politics. Will be a more moderate candidate, I would guess. And uh, I think there's another judge from Madison. Yeah, Everett Mitchell from Madison is running, and I would think he'd be viewed as a progressive and... He's a pastor. The problem now is the crime issue. People are very, very concerned about Mm -hmm. crime and safety. And the whole idea of progressive approaches to criminal justice is not popular. We saw that in in the San Francisco prosecutor being recalled. So I think if somebody's painted as a quote unquote liberal, I don't agree with those labels. But in a judicial sense, that's going to be a tough issue. And I think that we'll probably see that. It'll be about crime. And I don't think probably Justice Kelly's ever handled a criminal case in his life, but um, I suspect he'll attack the others on their on the basis of their cases. You know, even when I was being appointed by Tommy or being considered, I had people much more conservative than me going through my court files and contacting victims on cases that I had handled to feel to find out if they were angry about mm-hmm. what I had done. It gets pretty nasty. In my case, they found a victim who was upset, and I understood why she was upset. It's going to focus on crime and safety, even though the court doesn't do criminal cases except on procedure and constitutional issues. Yeah, I've always thought that was sort of ironic that a lot of these Supreme Court cases are about crime and safety when they don't. I mean, that's that's a lower level judge that's doing those sort of cases and putting people away, and that's that's a whole other system. It's not it's not what the Supreme Court does. The other myth is that law enforcement backs judges on the Supreme Court because of their criminal law views, and that's not true at all. It's about union issues and employment-related issues. And unions that endorse particular candidates think that a particular candidate is going to be good for them on labor-related issues. It's not search and seizure and those kinds of things, but that's the impression the public gets with those endorsements. Is one of the solutions making sure that our children learn civics in school? Like a year ago or two years ago, we endorsed a requirement for civics in public schools. Madison, for example, is one of the schools that doesn't require civics. Don't we need to 
teach our kids that a judge is different than a politician and that the courts have a much different function than the legislature? Well, I think it's critical. And I think it is one of the big problems we have with government is people do not understand the various roles of the branches. And another problem, I think, is people don't understand Congress's role or Senate's role in advising consent on a U.S. Supreme Court appointment, that it's the president's appointment and that the the Senate can advise a consent. And really, historically, that was to say, is this person qualified to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court? Not did they give this speech once upon a time or did they belong to this group? But I think particularly understanding the independence of the judiciary is critical. I know we used to train a lot of judges from around the world and they would come to visit the United States and they they would be amazed that judges would find a statute unconstitutional because in so many countries, you didn't dare as a judge rule that the, the, the legislative branch or the executive branch had done anything wrong. They just, you know, you were under those branches. And here we really believe in that independence and the ability to have that checks and balance. And we are losing it because people don't understand the system. Are there any other solutions, Janine, to just the hostility to some degree increasing towards our judicial system and the breakdown of at least the perception of fairness and independence? What other solutions are there, if any? Or is there is it just a really tough thing? Well, I don't think there's an easy solution. I, there, there are a number of initiatives, I think, that need to be applauded and recognized. And Chief Justice Shirley Abrahamson, when she was chief, she started the uh, Supreme Court on wheels. And, and once a year, the court would move to a different city in in Wisconsin and set up and would have talks to school age kids and have people come through and we'd have a luncheon with public officials and and it was an idea that people in a, you know Claire or Green Bay or Cross could get to know the court. Yeah. Um, she also had a really good program. It still exists in its court with class, which is our classes can come into the Supreme Court. They all get some materials in advance on an argument. And after the arguments, a justice will stay after and not answer substantive questions, but answer questions people have. I mean, that's a little thing about the court. I think even though the elections are not so much campaign as they used to be, I think judges being out in the communities and talking to groups and talking to kids and enhancing, hopefully, civics from classrooms is really what we need for people to understand why that's so important. I don't think people generally, because of lack of civics, understand how important those three branches of government are and why we have it that way. How many really good qualified judges never get appointed to the Supreme Court because the one party's not exactly certain how they felt about Roe v. Wade or guns or anything like that? And how many really talented judges never get appointed because we don't know where they stand. That may happen, but the reverse is true. What I always explain on issues of death penalty and abortion and those really often ethical, moral kinds of views is that there are two lines here. One is, how do I feel on those issues as a person? How do I react? The second is, how do I rule as a judge? And I knew a judge, for example, in, in, in the state of Washington, He publicly said he was absolutely opposed to the death penalty. But if he got a death penalty case and and it was proven up, he would affirm it. The problem with giving your personal views, it's kind of like 
wink, wink voter. I'm going to vote my best this way on it when I get a case. And t- we shouldn't vote that way. Either We have two choices. Either you think you're independent. I may feel this way on this issue, but I'm going to vote another way. Or you should get off the case because you can't separate your own personal religious views or political views from the case. There was a judge in Milwaukee. He's still on the bench. Very good judge. He was out of children's court very devout Catholic, and the children's court is where a young woman, a juvenile, can ask permission to have an abortion without her parents' consent. She would file a petition represented by a lawyer, and this particular judge refused to hear those. He said, because I will never grant them. And so someone else is going to have to hear those cases because my personal views just Mm -hmm. take over and I can't look at it legally. And so I, you know, that's the problem with with people saying I'm in favor of this law, I'm against this law. It's like a signal that that's how you're going to vote on it. And it's not understanding. I can tell you the number of times I did not like the decision I reached in a case, but the legislature had ruled on it and they had language and the the remedy is for the legislature to change it, not the court to change it. Mm -hmm. That's why I get upset with the U.S. Supreme Court kind of meddling on all these things and changing everything. But I'll give you an example. I had two cases and I had a lot of I had a lot of friends really angry at me. We had two cases within a year of each other. One involved gay adoption and one dealed with gay visitation uh, when a couple have split up. And on the gay adoption, I I voted that the legislature at that time did not authorize gay adoptions. But I wrote a concurrence that said the legislature should look at this. There are a lot of children that need to be adopted and a number of places are doing it. And it's the legislature's role. It wasn't a constitutional argument, should do it. On the gay visitation thing, the statute said that you could, you had a right to visit if you were a parent or in a parent-like relationship. I'll never forget the language. Mm -hmm. To me, that covered a gay partner. If somebody had lived in a parent-like. So I... I was the swing on both of them, but that's an example of honoring the legislature and and not undoing what they've done if they've clearly covered it, or on the other hand, to respect it. And that's the thing about those issues is that just because you personally feel that way doesn't mean that you have to hold the law does that, because then then it's lawless. Then it's just whatever you personally believe and not, not what the law says. Janine, this is what I like about you so much is that we ask that exact question to Supreme Court candidates when they come in. Can you name a case where you were unhappy with your ruling, but you followed the law? And unfortunately, recently, we haven't had many people come in there with a with a distinct answer for a time where they were upset with the case they had to the decision they had to make based on the law, which is kind of disturbing. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when I left the court, I had some gay friends take me out to lunch and and say, you know, we really like you, but can you please explain how you did this to us and not allow adoptions? And I did. Yeah, I'm not saying I was perfect, but I tried to be consistent in that philosophy because I think that's important that you got to stay in your lane, so to speak, and, Mm -hmm. and do what you've asked to do. And it may be inconsistent with the way I would vote if I were in the, in the election booth. Yeah. Judges are not legislators. It's a very different role, and judges don't do what they think is right. They're supposed to do what they think the law requires. I've been involved with the judiciary 
both as a as a trial court judge and appellate judge, and I was a law professor and as a lawyer in the community, and I did a lot of national international teaching. For the most part, we have an excellent judiciary in Wisconsin. We are very blessed, and I'm focusing now primarily on the trial court judges. Most judges go to work wanting to do the right thing. And you could always see somebody that kind of goes off the trail and, and maybe says something or does something. But day in and day out, justice that we dispense in, in Wisconsin, I think, lives up to what it was meant to be, which is a fair place for people to have a due process hearing to be heard and understood. And judges are always trying to find more ways, whether it's developing problem-solving courts or whether it's veterans courts or domestic violence courts or restorative justice courts, ways to be more responsive to people that come through the system. And so they get hammered a lot on a decision, obviously, where somebody gets out on bail and does something awful, but the day and day work volume of cases they handle, we're getting a high quality of justice in Wisconsin. Well, Janine, thanks for joining us on Center Stage with Milford and Hands. And much more importantly, thanks for being on our editorial board as one of our three community members. It's just been a great experience for us. I think you've really brought so much knowledge and experience to our editorial board. You're also outside the Madison bubble, which we appreciate. All of us live here in Madison. It's just been a pleasure having you on the editorial board. And thanks for continuing to help us develop our opinions here at the Wisconsin State Journal to what we hope anyway is improve our community and state. Well, you're welcome. And it's been one of the funnest things I've done in a long time. I I look forward to our editorial meetings. I always learn things. And I love being able to talk and not have to write anything or draw anything. (laughs) I just think the group of people working on it are just terrific. And so it's really been a fun experience for me. Well, I'll I'll teach you how to draw a a cartoon at some point here, Jenny. I teach you how to draw Michael Gableman. (laughs) (laughs) Our theme music is by Tube Tester.